Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 9th of October 2023 and this is is episode 318. On today's programme, I talk to Peter Welsh about Sir Hedworth Mew, brackets Lambton, during the Great War. Sir Hedworth Mew was a distinguished Royal Naval officer known for his leadership and service from the Anglo-Egyptian War to the First World War. Peter spoke to me from his home in Washington in Tyne and Weir. Peter, welcome back to the Dispatches podcast. I think for the fourth time, I think you are the record holder as the most um, most spoken about or so individual who, who has the privilege, I'm sure, of coming on this um, great show. But let's start from the beginning. Could you recap for us your general interest in the war and also how you came to talk about the Lampton, who, who we talked about last time, um, our sort of Downton Abbey family? <laughs> Privileged indeed. Privilege doesn't really sum it up. Uh, it's not a strong enough word. Anyway, uh, the Great War in general, the Lamptons in particular, a love of a good story and interesting characters. Uh, my dad loved history. On my mum's side, I had a, a very scary granddad who'd been in the Royal Irish Dragoon Guards and who, according to the family tale, had been told by Kitchener to put his sword away at Omdurman. He'd killed enough. Uh, well, uh, my granddad did have a uh, a liking for a drink, so I don't know whether the story was true or not. And I had an uncle on my mum's side that was, uh, he was a World War II commando. But that was it in terms of military background. So it's been a study of military history of what people at that time and at that place did, laced with that uh, never-ending question, an unanswerable question, what would I have done in their shoes? Um, I live in... Um, Worm Hill, or beside the Worm Hill, and as I look out of the window, uh, that's where the, the Harriton War Memorial used to be. It was on land given by the Lamptons. The legend is just outside my front window. So if you find out about one Lampton, uh, the man who was the third Earl and who gave the land, it seemed natural to do the others, and that's what I've gone ahead and done over the, the last three or four years. So for this podcast, we'll be concentrating on Hedworth Lampton, wonderful name, or Muse, as he became. Tell me about his life and career. Hedworth Lampton was born in 1856. He was the third son of George Frederick Darcy Lampton, the second Earl of Durham. His older brothers were the twins, John George, the third Earl, and Frederick William, who was briefly the fourth Earl. Hedworth's parents would have another six sons and four daughters, so their final total being 13. And amazingly, all of them survived into adulthood and even old age. They were Charles, Beatrix, George, Catherine, William, Claude, Darcy, Eleanor, Anne and Francis. On the death of his father, that's to say the second Earl, Hedworth's allowance was around £800 a year. So he joined the Navy in 1870 and began making a name for himself at the bombardment of Alexandria and the spiking of guns at Fort Mex in 1882. The Naval and Military Gazette noted his appointment by the Khedive, 
as commander of the Order of the Medjadeer, third class. In 1883, the Bradford Daily Telegraph suggested that the promotion of Hedworth as flag lieutenant to Lord Alcester had caused, quotes, deep indignation in the Navy. He has left over 500 of his seniors. When there is such a block on promotion, he has a powerful friend at Whitehall where jobbery is rampant. Not for uh, jobbery, rampant, Whitehall, uh, everything comes around, doesn't it, again? Not for the last time, Lucky Lampton. Hedworth's powerful friend was not identified, but it was perhaps the same powerful friend that organised his appointment as aide-de-camp to the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and later to be captain of the Dolphin, and then in 1888, the Royal Yacht, Osborne. The latter appointment brought him into close proximity with Queen Victoria, uh, with other royals and those in their circle, including on his visits, the Kaiser in 1889 and 1907 and 1911. Uh, his next major appointment was as captain of the War Spite, with a move out to the Pacific Station for a couple of years from 1890. He returned to become secretary to the First Lord of the Admiralty, a job which did not appear to have taken up all his time, given that his part in the aristocratic social world of the time seems to have been a very enthusiastic one. Balls, the races, shooting parties, dinners, Hedworth was frequently seen about town and on the grouse shooting moors. It may be assumed that his rise up the naval hierarchy would have continued, but what accelerated that was the outbreak of the Boer War. In January 1897, Hedworth had been appointed to commission the Powerful, which had a crew of 900 for the China Station, uh, it was built at Barrow. The ship was 14,000 tonnes, could raise 22 knots and cost £740,000. After further service in the Far East, Hedworth was on his way home on the Powerful, perhaps to take up a new appointment as Chief of Staff to Admiral Fisher, of whom we will hear more, in the Mediterranean, but the ship and Hedworth were diverted to South Africa. In December 1899, shortly before being ordered to Ladysmith, Hedworth had written to his sister, I wish I was not in the Navy. Here we are rotting in Cape Town when we ought to be having a naval brigade in front. I would rather be a private soldier in the Northumberland Fusiliers than captain of the Powerful. That was to change. He took a battery of guns from the Powerful overland to Ladysmith, helped raise the siege, became an instant national hero, and offered a precedent for what we all watched when we were kids, uh, that's to say, uh, the activity of moving the guns at the Royal Tournament at Earl's Court. So when the powerful returned to Portsmouth after the relief of Lady Smith, there was a large crowd to greet the ship and the latest national hero. And I can't emphasise to, that too much. He was a huge national hero. In April 1900, there was a ceremonial march through London from Victoria Station to the Admiralty, and then an inspection at Horse Guards Parade, then another at Windsor Castle, then back to Portsmouth with 20 officers, 230 men and a gun. The city of Durham made him a freeman. Praise and plaudits rained down upon his head, and being lucky, and now heroic, he was invited to tell of his daring do by Lady, Lady Valerie Muse. She was the widow of Sir Henry Muse, a wealthy London brewer. Hedworth's light was very rarely under a bushel. Lady Muse, an ex-actress, was also very flamboyant and was seen about town in a, a theatre pulled by four zebra, don't you know? Anyway, 
thrilled by Hedworth's story, she and Hedworth agreed that if he'd change his name to Muse, she'd change her will, and that would be worth the country estate and her husband's fortune. When Valerie died in December 1910, the Daily Mirror reckoned that fortune was around £750,000. And if you multiply that by 90 to change your name... Anyway, Lucky Lampton sailed again, this time as Lucky Muse. Or as Boreas wrote in the War Office Times in July 1913 about just how lucky he was. It shocks me, I confess, when I find a blue-blooded aristocrat of this way of thinking and having no hesitation in transforming himself from a Lampton to a Muse for the mere purpose of fingering a considerable amount of coin of the realm, amassed by means of making an intoxicating liquor harmful to mankind and productive of much misery and many tragedies. Quite so. So, whereas his, his earlier career, it had been an unnamed powerful friend responsible for his rise, his bravery and resourcefulness at Ladysmith must have accelerated his continued escalation up the societal ladder. There was no stopping him now. He was appointed as captain of the new royal yacht, the Albert and Victoria, uh, he later became a rear admiral, an equerry to the king. He commanded a channel squadron, then a cruiser squadron in the Mediterranean, returned as commander-in-chief to the China station. In the midst of all of this, he carried on an affair with the wife of a doctor in the Royal Army Medical Corps. William Moyle O'Connor cited Hedworth as a correspondent in 1912, though no divorce appears to have been finalised in the case. And later, what Sir John Colville, who was a friend of the family and actually married into the family, later wrote a book about him, he called it a lurid affair with the wife of the German ambassador to China. She was apparently invited to stay on his ship. Shock horror. He became an admiral in 1911, was appointed commander-in-chief at Portsmouth in 1912, and the appointment was worth uh, a measly £4,467 a year, plus an official residence, though Hedworth needed neither the money nor the residence, having lots of the former and several of the latter. So we reach the beginning of the Great War. So tell me about Hedworth Muse, as he became, and what he got up to during the conflict. So when the Great War began, <clears throat> Hedworth was 58, and as it transpired in the twilight of his career, the end might well have been delayed had George V, a good friend of Hedworth, got his way. The king had wanted Hedworth appointed First Sea Lord when a vacancy arose in October 1914. And that vacancy was there because the brouhaha about the Teuton name of Prince Louis Battenberg. Even though Prince Louis's nephew had been killed at the front uh, and two sons were in the Navy, one newspaper spoke of wanting a true Britisher and the word Teuton was much in evidence about uh, Prince Louis Battenberg. Churchill said he could never work with Hedworth, and one wonders why, um, birds of a feather. In the event, uh, Fisher was reappointed First Sea Lord, but resigned in 1915 after differences with Churchill over Gallipoli. In March 1916, the recall of Fisher was again mooted. In his maiden speech as MP for Portsmouth, uh, which he'd now become, Hedworth said that if the First Lord brought back Jackie Fisher to the Admiralty, there would be, quote, consternation. Uh, as quoted in Hansard, Hedworth wished Mr. Churchill all the best in France and hopes he will stay there. 
Other comments by Hedworth about bringing Fisher back as First Lord of the Admiralty were equally dismissive. He was a man who'd always thrown the apple of discord into the naval service. He was an old man who'd done good work in his day and ought to be left in peace. And to compare Admiral Jellicoe or Admiral Jackson with Lord Fisher was like comparing Bethman Holweg with Bismarck. The reason Lord Fisher is not liked in the Navy is because he is grossly unfair to those under him. Uh, Fisher was not brought back after his resignation in 1915. At his funeral in 1920, the King was represented by Hedworth News. Anyway, Hedworth didn't become Sea Lord, so let's go back to the Admiral in wartime. He and Lady Muse, um, that's to say uh, he'd married the divorced Countess of Chelsea in April 1910 and gained himself five stepdaughters in doing so. Valerie, the original Lady Muse, she died in December 1910. So Hedworth and Lady Muse, they were both active and there was plenty of news of their activities in the papers, but little of it was really significant in military terms. Or more likely, the papers were, perhaps for reasons of security, unable to comment on that side of his work. Uh, I'm sure he wasn't backward in coming forward. He never was. As Admiral of the Fleet and Commander-in-Chief Portsmouth, he was responsible for policing the Channel and the safe arrival of the British Expeditionary Force and the supplies that followed into France. But there's little detail about this in the papers. September 14, he led an investigation into whether Admiral Truebridge, uh, George reminds me of the Navy Lark, Admiral Truebridge was responsible for the escape of the Breslau and the Gerben from the Mediterranean. Admiral Truebridge, like Admiral Milne, had been, was exonerated. And in June 1915, Hedworth offered some tweaks to the rules issued under Dora, re-fishing and cruising in the, uh, in the appropriately named Portsmouth Defence Area. August 1915, he attended the funerals at Haslar Cemetery in Portsmouth of 14 men from the E-13 submarine, their bodies having been brought down by train from Hull. Submarine was one of two heading for the Baltic to interdict German shipping, but had run aground in Danish waters and was eventually attacked by the Germans. Fourteen men were killed. Their bodies were returned to Hull by the Danes. Fifteen of the crew were interned, and another war crime uh, was noted. So, have you searched other sources uh, other than the newspapers for his work at Portsmouth? Right, what I was doing was looking for a chronological list of everything Hedworth was involved in. So my first stop was the newspaper archive. But there's nothing in the Hampshire archive. There's nothing on the This Is Portsmouth website. In the National Archives, uh, I've got a copy of his um, record, but it's basically a list of promotion and ships that he served on and the like. There's nothing in the Hertfordshire archive, which is where he lived. And the, the Lambton archives uh, are private, and there's either very little in them on Hedworth or I wasn't allowed to see it for whatever reason. Uh, I was only allowed in the, the Lambton Archives twice. I suspect they're going to sell the Lambton Archives to Durham University for uh, to pay off death duties one of these days, but at the moment they are private. There are 103 entries in Hansard, uh, so it's not easy to find out precise details of his career, and as I'm a uh, not aware of anybody that's written a book about it. Uh, that was what I was limited to. Hedworth retired in January 1916. He became unopposed, the MP for Portsmouth. He replaced his friend, Admiral Lord Charles Beresford. 
His work as a retired admiral and now MP was extensive. He headed the fundraising efforts for the Royal Marine and Seamen's Orphan Schools and the Royal School for the Daughters of Naval and Marine Officers and for Trafalgar Day. He gave his house at Kemptown in Brighton as a convalescent home for officers. He did have several others. In February 1915, he unveiled in Portsmouth Dockyard the memorial to Captain Scott, the memorial having been designed by Lady Scott herself. Uh, June 1916, he was in York for the unveiling of a, a memorial to Craddock of Coronel. And in July of 1916, there was a requiem held for sailors lost at Jutland in St. Paul's at Knightsbridge. August 1916, he became a member of the council to raise money for a Kitchener Memorial Fund for naval men. And April 1918, he asked the president of the Board of Trade, Sir Charles Stanley, if he knew that the government was allowing the import of foreign-made corsets. While the British Association of Corset Manufacturers were restricted to a small proportion of the steels and raw materials they needed. 70,000 corset makers were in danger of losing their jobs, he pointed out, and of course many of them were in Portsmouth. Who knew that Portsmouth was the centre of the corset industry? Stanley said it was a question of shipping availability, so I think he kind of fobbed him off. And in December 1917, Hedworth was asked to chair a Commons committee, uh, one of these short-lived committees, but it included the Director of Special Intelligence at the War Office, and they were investigating the export of cement to Holland. Newspapers had been agitating that a German pillbox that had been captured seemed to have been made of British cement, perhaps part of the supply sold to Holland and then sold on. But it all turned out to be a storm in a teacup, and the, uh, it was not the case. Hedworth, from what you've said, seems so far to sound like a man of strong opinions, strongly expressed. Uh, yes, the Lamptons were never backwards in coming forward. Um, inside the house and outside, his speeches were described as breezy, or gusty, even rollicking, uh, and for sure he was trenchant. He called a spade a spade. He said a cause of the war was that the Germans were jealous of the beauty of English women, German women being rather stout. In July 1916, talked about conscientious objection, he said, is there a single sentence in holy writ which justifies these cowards who will not defend their women and children? Uh, he argued that any effort to collect the votes of soldiers and sailors on active service, as had been suggested, um, you know, uh, led to the absent voters list, so, um, a source of much information. Um, they would deserve to lose the war if they tried to collect their votes. Truth, uh, a magazine, described them as a stage cat doing a hornpipe. Uh, after General Morris in 1918 had written a letter impugning the veracity of ministers in statements to Parliament, deep intake of breath, a court of inquiry was set up. Hedworth, whose ordinary weapon in debate is a caustic humour all his own, said he was sick to death with the way things were going in this house. The Speaker told him that Hyde Park orations were not required. It wasn't only the Speaker that was sometimes irked. The magazine Truth, uh, in February 1917, suggested that if only Hedworth will hand in his medals and epaulettes at the nearest post office, the war loan will be an instant success. He had arrived for his first attendance in the House of Commons in full admiral's uniform and like Sylvester, with a row of 40 medals on his chest. He certainly had plenty to choose from, 
having been awarded the Légion d'honneur, the Italian Grand Officer of the Order of St. Morris, the German First Class Order of the Red Eagle, the Double Dragon of China, to name but four. He suggested in May 1917 that men ought to give up the effeminate practice of taking sugar in their tea. In June 1917, he protested about teetotalers using Dora to rob the poor man of his beer and amusements by suspending the licenses of publicans who'd broken the act. Uh, he said that the government should get rid of the press hanging round their necks like an albatross. Yeah, let's have a dictatorship, Hedworth. In March 1918, in response to complaints that shipping was being used to import material for brewing, Hedworth said that those complaining were trying to turn the country teetotal. Contrary to the teachings of the founder of the Christian religion. Teetotalers, he said, were a contemptible minority in the House of Commons. He suggested that Zeppelin raids were democratic. They didn't care who they killed. And in October 1918, and this wouldn't have gone down too well in the family, a proposal for women to become MPs was made by Herbert Samuel. Uh, Edward's brother-in-law, Lord Robert Cecil, son of the Marquess of Salisbury, uh, agreed. Hedworth wondered about sitting till 2am. Who goes home will become... Who will take me home? He didn't think it a fit and proper place for any respectable woman. And he was one of only 27 to vote against the idea. 274 voted for it. In November 1918, vote, perhaps not surprisingly, opined that Hedworth's antiquated jokes and quips were received in the main in silence describing him as a last-ditcher. Not everyone was amused or persuaded by Hedworth Lampton. News. Having surrendered his last ditch and stood down at the election of 1918, I think he perhaps recognised his time had passed, what was a soon-to-be retired admiral, his flag was furled finally in July 1921. What was he to do? Well, he'd already been involved with uh, the setting up of the Comrades of the Great War with... Uh, a number of MPs called Ashley, Davies, Hamar Greenwood, J. Norton Griffiths and Albert Smith. And inevitably and rightly, he was still working on behalf of service personnel. Right, you said to me that now he was a retired M. Admiral. He retired as an MP in 1918 and he was a millionaire. By my reckoning, he must be in his early 60s. How did he spend his time in the 1920s? Um, as was normal within his class, he attended race meetings, more of that in a second, and the house parties that were part of that scene, eh, to watch his horses, to mix with the rich, the famous and the royal. He went to places like Buxton for the water and Brighton and Brittany and Biarritz and Cannes, his choice being a hotel where jazz music was never heard. Uh, he had trips to Paris and South Africa. He managed to get his five stepdaughters married off, always a triumph. Um, and I mentioned racing. In June 1923, the Aberdeen Press uh, pointed out that 13 millionaires had horses in the derby that year, including Hedworth, his fortune made out of Muse's beer. I think that was a bit of a sneer. As early as 1885, he'd been uh, listed as an owner of racehorses. His brother Jack was involved in the sport of kings. Both of them were at various times members of the jockey club. Francis and George, two other brothers, were important and well-known trainers, George training two Derby winners for uh, various owners, but mostly Lord Derby. It's no surprise, therefore, that the Lampton voices have been raised in support of the continuation of horse racing during the war. 
At a meeting of the Jockey Club in March 1915, various leaders in the world of racing, such as Lord Durham, Lord Derby, Lord Rosebery, argued for its continuation, not just because it was sport, but because ending it would ruin the industries connected with it, and also because if it was abandoned, wrote Hedworth, then the Germans would score a propaganda advantage, our depression being so great that we dare not run a race that's over 100 years old. They should not listen to ponderous pessimists and despondent dukes. And with a characteristic allusion, he added that Germany is racing to perdition, as surely as Smuggler Bill did, but might in the long run be crawling to a new and sadder Canossa. Uh, that's the Holy Roman Emperor and the Pope meeting in 1077, if you, like me, don't know the reference. Racing did continue, uh, though in a much reduced form, but there were controversies surrounding the use of cars to get to racing and the use of oats, which might have fed people, being used for racehorses. And Hedworth, in fact, was chair of the Parliamentary Horse Breeding Committee. Uh, not just racehorses, uh, obviously horses needed for all kinds of um, jobs and activities in those days. Hedworth died of cardiac failure and cerebral thrombosis at Danbury, Hampshire, in September 1929, his brothers Jack and Will Frederick William having respectively died in the previous September and in April, he was described as one of the king's greatest friends. September 1929, in the Scotsman, uh, they described his funeral and pointed out that he'd been represented by Admiral, the king had been represented by Admiral Sir Richard Fillimore, which was conducted with full naval honours at Hertfordshire. Um, his coffin was carried by seven admirals. A naval detachment from HMS Pembroke formed a guard of honour as the cortege entered the church and a marine band played a funeral march while sailors stood with reversed arms. Three volleys were fired over the grave and the last post was sounded. A service was held at St Paul's Knightsbridge at the same time uh, and there was an immense amount of brass at that uh, memorial service. Army, Navy, Air Force. Others present, Countess Jellicoe, Lord and Lady Pembroke, Lady Harcourt, Lady Crewe, Lady Holford, the Duchess of Newcastle, another one of these terrifically long lists of toffs. In what the Daily Mirror called a tragic coincidence, HMS Powerful, uh, from which the guns were carried to Ladysmith, entered Blythe Dock to be dismantled the day Hedworth died. Uh, a tragic coincidence indeed. Hedworth left property uh, in his own disposition of £900,000. Death duties they thought would be £300,000. He left £300 to his chauffeur and his valet and other gifts to servants. Uh, to his wife he left his racing stud and horses and Tibbles Park, Danbury House, Clarendon House Newmarket, 18 Portman Square. Uh, yeah, he had a few houses. And I suppose... Uh, in summing up Hedworth Lampton or Muse, he was a brave man and an opinionated one. The latter trait being shared by his brother Jack, the third Earl, he led an eventful and lucky life, both in the Navy and out of it. He was a national hero for his exploits at Ladysmith. The Westminster Gazette described him as an excellent hater and a good friend. He moved in gilded circles. He met or dined with, here's a list for you, Admiral Togo, Queen Victoria, the King of Siam, Tsar Nicholas, Victor Emmanuel of Italy, Francis Joseph of Austria, 
the Pope in 1903, who was Leo XIII, Edward VII. The Tatler actually described him as the king's own admiral in 1902. George V, the emperors of Japan, China, Germany. He listened to Del Nelly Melba. He listened to John Philip Sousa's band. He dined with Ryder Haggard and Conan Doyle. It was a privileged life and an eventful one. I can't honestly say I'm a great admirer of Hedworth Lampton, uh, but that's to do with personal prejudices and perhaps his personality. So where could people learn more about um, Hedworth Lampton's uh, somewhat prolific and uh, rather amazing life? Right. Um, it's not easy because I'm happy to supply anybody with any information that they happen to want, uh, given that you know, we've got 40 or 50 pages of uh, details from the newspapers. Um, the Lampton Archive, as I say, is closed. Uh, there's not much else about him. Um, we have a website, but we haven't put this information on yet. But at some stage, uh, I will be putting all of this in the Durham County Record Office. And if people wanted to email me at PeteWelshGettysburg at btinternet.com, that's my Gettysburg address, uh, I'd be happy to supply them with any information that they want. Peter, thank you very much for your time. You're very welcome. OK, bye now. That's great. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>